I speak tonight about a subject that is one of the most difficult subjects, I guess other than the subject on hell, the subject that I bring tonight is perhaps the hardest in all the Bible. Would you open your Bible to Mark chapter 2, chapter 3, Mark chapter 3. Mark the third chapter, beginning with verse 22. May we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for the privilege of prayer. Thank You for those men who met before church tonight to pray. Thank You for those who met yesterday morning to pray. We thank Thee for youth groups who are meeting all through the week, some at 6.30 in the morning to pray. We thank you for some ladies' groups that are meeting to pray. Now, Father, we pray that this church will be a prayerful church, and that now the Holy Spirit would make the Word of God alive and quick and powerful. May every person who has come receive the message, the instruction from heaven that our hearts need. We pray for those that are lost, that the Spirit of God will arrest their attention and draw them to Jesus, save people who will come to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. In Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 22, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the demons casteth he out demons. And he called them unto him and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, the house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men and blasphemies with which they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Spirit hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said, he hath an unclean spirit. The scribes and Pharisees had seen Jesus heal. First of all, they didn't like it because he healed on the Sabbath day. That was their institution. They thought the Sabbath day was such a day that nothing could be done if you had to take so many steps. You couldn't cook a meal. You just couldn't do anything. 
And their righteousness consisted of keeping holy days and tithing their incomes and looking down their noses at publicans and sinners. One man, for instance, went up to the temple and prayed, Lord, I thank you that I fast twice in the week and I pay tithes of all that I possess, and I thank you I'm not like this publican over here. Now, that was the general attitude of the scribes and Pharisees. Notice Jesus said he prayed with himself. His prayers didn't get any higher than the ceiling. He prayed with himself. And when they saw Jesus heal a paralytic man, touch somebody's eyes and cause them to see again, interrupt a funeral procession and raise dead people to life, they couldn't explain this. And so they said, he has a devil. That's what's wrong with him. He has a demon. He's possessed of demons. He's casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub. That's what's wrong with him. And it was in this context that Jesus gave that terrible warning about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He called unto them and said in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise against himself, he be divided, he cannot stand but hath an end. You see his line of reasoning. He's saying, if I cast demons out in the name of the demon, that's the demons at war with each other, the demon's house is going to fall. He said, nothing eternal can be accomplished there. And then he went a step further. He said, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies with which they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Spirit hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. Now, there are some people who would like to take this passage out of the Bible and say uh, it really doesn't uh, even, shouldn't even be here. There are others who say, well, it should be there, but uh, it's probably, uh, it, it doesn't mean exactly what it says because surely words so severe couldn't come out of the same lips of the gentle Savior who spoke to the woman in adultery and said, thy sins be forgiven thee, go and sin no more. And had said to all kinds of sinful people while he was here those three years, your sins are forgiven. He seemed to be the messenger of forgiveness. And here he is out of those same lips saying there is something for which a man can never be forgiven. And so they say, surely it must not mean that. What is the worst sin of all. Nobody likes a thief. Somebody steals something, it just unnerves you. Did you ever come back to your car and find it broken in and you didn't know who did it, you didn't have any idea who did it and the things that you needed, your stereo or your coat or your clothes were taken? Several of you have had that experience. It's an unnerving experience and you feel well, I just wish I could get my hands on that guy. Uh, if he needed it, 
he could ask me and I'd help him. But here he comes when I'm not even looking and he steals it and I don't even know who he is. And you get angry, righteously indignant. Nobody likes a thief. Other people have said suicide must be the sin for which there is no forgiveness. I had a dear lady come one night and say to me, a very close loved one of mine committed suicide. That person was a Christian, was a professing Christian. Did that loved one commit the unpardonable sin? Where is that loved one now? Now, I readily tell you that I don't know all the answers. There are many, many, many answers that I don't know. And one day we will stand before the Lord and He will answer the things that now seem so mysterious. But if I understand the Scripture correctly, our sins, the sins of a believer, past, present, future, are under the blood. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, that cleanses from all sin. We are not forgiven for our sins because we simply ask forgiveness. We are forgiven for our sins because of an attitude of repentance toward God and faith in not ourselves to live a perfect life or ourselves to live such a life that we will earn God's forgiveness, but repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in what He did when He died on the cross. In His blood that is efficacious to cleanse from every sin, not just some sins we did 20 years ago, but the sins we do now, and the sins of the future. That's what it means to put your trust in Jesus. It means that you're God's child by faith, for whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate them, He also called. And whom He called them, He also justified. And whom He justified them, He also in the past tense glorified. And it hasn't happened yet. It's future. But it's in Scripture as past tense. It begins with God's foreknowledge and it covers the whole garment. So if a person is saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, he is saved forever. I believe that. And if I'm wrong, God will set me straight in heaven. And if you think I'm wrong, search the Scripture. Find out you're your own priest. Every individual believer has a right to get into the Word of God and find out what God is saying. But I thank the Lord I had the privilege of saying to that dear lady, the one, your loved one, was extremely distraught. We'll have to leave with God because God judgeth righteously and He makes no mistakes. I am not the judge, I cannot tell you. But I can say that the believer's sins, whatever they are, are under the blood, past, present, future. Well, what then is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? There are two sins spoken of in the Scripture for which there is no forgiveness. Uh, let me change that. There is one sin in the Scripture for which there is no forgiveness. There is another sin for which we are not to pray for forgiveness. 
One sin is in the life of an unbeliever. The other is in the life of a believer. If you'll hold your finger in Mark chapter 4 and turn to 1 John chapter 5 verse 16. I want to deal with this one first. If a man see his brother, and I take that to mean a Christian. If a man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. The believer can commit a sin unto death. You mean the Bible teaches that? Yes. And it's a dangerous thing. It's possible for a Christian to go so far out of the will of God that he can get himself so removed from the will of God, the plan of God, the blueprint of God, that God stands back and says, all right, if that's what you're going to do, go on, go on in it. Incidentally, that's what Romans chapter 1 says God did concerning the sin of homosexuality. God tried to bring them back, bring them back, bring them back, and finally God stood over and said, all right, if that's what you're going to do, just go on. And God gave them up to a reprobate mind. God gave them up. God gave them up three times, it says that. And in this instance, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says that it is possible for a Christian to so sin and so wreck his testimony, so ruin himself, that he has sinned a sin unto death, and he says, I don't say you should pray for that person. I wouldn't for the life of me tell you names, but I'm convinced in the heart of hearts that I've known some people who have committed this sin, a sin unto death. You say, where is that person in eternity? Well, if I understand the Scripture correctly, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. There is a sin unto death. That doesn't say hell. It says a sin unto death. In other words, God has to remove that individual from the earth. And he cuts him off and takes him out so he'll not hurt the work of God any longer. That's the reason we need to leave judgment to God. God can take care of it. He doesn't need puny little you and me to do his judging for him. Sort of foolish and silly for us to go around judging each other. God is the judge. He takes care of it. And he knows how to do it perfectly, righteously, when we don't. And so the individual Christian can sin a sin that will remove him from the face of the earth on another Sunday night. We'll talk about the way God disciplines a Christian. This is the most severe form of God's discipline in the life of a believer. He removes him, has an early funeral for him. I know a church that was blockaded year after year after year after year. Couldn't do anything because there was a man in it that refused to repent of some sins. Now, he was a believer. He was saved. He even told me he was saved. And this man blocked the will of God, the work of God in this particular church. It certainly wasn't this church, but it was a church 
in southern Kentucky. And finally, he ran preacher after preacher off. Listen, fellows and ladies and gentlemen, don't pitch yourself against God's man. No, don't do that. That's never in the will of God. Korah tried it against Moses, and Korah ended up in problems and trouble. This individual tried it, and he succeeded in getting rid of a number of preachers. Finally, God said, that's enough, and he removed him. Suddenly, no chance, no chance forever to do anything to rectify his testimony in the earth. It was all gone, over, just like that. It's a serious thing for a Christian to sin against God. But now I want to deal with the blasphemy. This is the second sin in the Bible that is exceedingly severe. First of all, the sin that a Christian can commit, a sin unto death. If I understand the Scripture correctly, that individual goes to be with Christ, losing all of his rewards, arriving, as it were, so by fire, because his works all consumed and burned up. But what about the person who blasphemies? Who is he? What is blasphemy? Who can commit it? And how can it be avoided? Number one, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Notice the background of this passage. The Pharisees and Sadducees had accused Jesus of working in the power of Satan. Jesus warned them to condemn him as gluttonous, a wine-bibbler, a breaker of the Sabbath, and blasphemy when he said, Thy sins are forgiven. He said, All of that might be forgiven as a sin of prejudice and ignorance, but to see a man delivered from the power of Satan unto God, to watch the work of the Spirit and of God and ascribe that work to the devil, this was out of sympathy with goodness and mercy. This was to be mixed up in thinking. This was to look at the very grace of God and power of God and call it the work of the devil. And Jesus said, that kind of thinking can't be forgiven. Now notice, first of all, Jesus was still in the flesh. In one of the other passages, in Matthew and Luke, where the same story is related and where the same sin is discussed, blasphemy, it is said that all manner of abuse against the Son of Man shall be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Jesus was still in his flesh. It were as if he, could, he were saying, I could be misunderstood. You might not recognize me. Jesus was so sympathetic. The great heart of the compassionate Savior. His own brother James didn't believe in him. And you know what he did when he got up from the dead? The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, he had a separate meeting with his brother James. Beautiful, isn't it? That's how compassionate he is. He was saying, you might not recognize me. I'm here and I perform the miracles and I feed 5,000 and I raise dead people and I'm going to die on a cross. You may not recognize me. And if you don't, 
The Holy Spirit, when He has come, He will point to me and He will convince you. As a matter of fact, there's some evidence that some of the other disciples didn't really know Jesus personally as Savior and Lord until after His resurrection. And the Lord is saying, you may not recognize me, that will be forgiven. You may call me a wine bibbler. You may say all manner of evil against me, and that can be forgiven. But if you say this against the Holy Ghost, you can never be forgiven. Now I want you to notice why. Turn your Bible to John chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? This is what Jesus said to the disciples before Calvary, the night before Calvary. The words that I speak unto you, verse 10, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. The Lord Jesus said, there will be a witness of the Spirit of God inside of you, and He will lead you to do greater works than I do in the flesh. We have only to look at Pentecost to find that. As far as we can tell, there was never a time in Jesus' earthly ministry when He was here in the days of His flesh, those three years, when there was more than a handful who really believed upon him as Savior. Oh, there were 5,000 there that got fed, and 4,000 another time. But Jesus, in John chapter 6, John tells us that when Jesus began to talk to them about the roughness of the way and the difficulty of the way, many of them went back and walked no more with him. They didn't know him. They didn't realize him. They didn't recognize him. But when the power of Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, Simon Peter stood up, and in one day, 3,000 people were saved. If I understand the Scripture correctly, that's more than were saved when Jesus was here in His flesh. Greater works than these shall ye do, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. The Holy Spirit will come and dwell in your heart, and He will teach you all things. The Holy Spirit of God. Now, what is blasphemy? There are three definitions of blasphemy. Number one, ridiculing the evident work of God's Spirit in men's lives. Number two, attributing the Spirit's work to the devil or folly or nothingness. Number three, cursing God or His representative, irreverence for Him. Only by the Holy Spirit can Christ be recognized today. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, listen to what the Word of God says. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. It is impossible to call Jesus Lord today except by the Holy Spirit. It is impossible to recognize Him as Savior except by the Holy Spirit. If you're here tonight and the Holy Spirit is dealing in your heart and is saying, Amen, what that man is saying is true. Jesus is the Christ. He died for you. You can have him as your Savior. If the Holy Spirit is whispering that in dealing with you and to turn it off 
and to count it as nothingness, to count it as profane, to count it as emotionalism, is blasphemy. It is dangerously near the sin that we're discussing tonight. In John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus said, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth who proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Therefore, to reject the witness of the Holy Spirit today, man passes up his only opportunity to be saved. The only way a man can be saved today is as the Holy Spirit deals with his heart and clutches his heart and pulls at his heart and tugs at his heart. And if we'll not listen to that, there's a line that is drawn by rejecting our Lord where the Spirit, where the call of his Spirit is lost. And you hurry along with a pleasure-mad throng, but have you counted, have you counted the cost? The Holy Spirit deals in our hearts. He convicts. I remember before I was saved, I used to go to a Methodist church, and I had an open heart. I think when I was five years old, I could have been saved. As a matter of fact, it's, I don't, it, one of the things that God has had to teach me in the work of the ministry is how Little children can come into church and write notes and uh, run all over church and all that kind of thing. I just don't understand it. I, I love them. You know that. I love them. But that's the reason I'm sort of hard on them because I believe we need to teach them because I was taught. And I won't pass that teaching on. You know, it's a rich heritage. But when I was five, my mother wouldn't let me write notes in church. She wouldn't let me. You know, some, I see some people take a, something out of their purse and give them to a little child. They sit there and scribble and write and all that kind of I never was allowed to do that. I went to church, my eyes were supposed to look at the preacher. And, and uh, when I would look at him, and they didn't have children's church, I had to sit there in the big church. And when I would look at him, it just seemed like God talked to me. And I remember one day he was pointing out like that, and he'd get a little bit excited and raise his voice, and I punched my mother, and I said, Mother, is he fussing at me? <laughs> I didn't know anybody else was there. Why did I think that? Because God's Holy Spirit was laying his hand upon my life, upon my heart, and bringing conviction. And then I started going to a Methodist church. And a brother Mickle used to preach. And when he had preached, when he ended the sermon, he would invite people to come as mourners to the mourners bench. And I didn't really know what they were doing down there. And one day a lady, great big lady, Miss Rothrock, came along and they were having this mourner's bench service and Miss Rothrock came and she went down, she was a big fat woman, and she went down the aisles and, and she found me. I don't know why, I guess maybe God was dealing with her. And she sort of got hold of my arm and she dragged me out in the aisle and she took me down there and said, get down there. And I got down there. <laughs> and others around there were crying and I'm not making light. Others were weeping. Others were laughing. Somebody would come along and say, now stand up and shout. And somebody else would say, pray through. Well, I didn't know how to do any of those things. I didn't know what they meant. I didn't understand it. And finally, I'm ashamed to tell you, it just sort of got next to me, and I was a child, and I sort of laughed. Now, I was not laughing at God. I respected God, but I didn't understand. It was just sort of a giggly, nervous laugh. And I'll never forget it. I got up and ashamed of it. I went back to my seat. I didn't understand what they were doing because nobody took the Bible and showed me how to be saved. 
They'd just say one thing or another, and I didn't know what they were saying. I didn't understand it. And I dropped out of church. And then a dear, I was on a train going to Florida, and a dear Jewish lady, you see, God, the, the steps of a good man are ordered by God. A dear Jewish lady came up to me and said, are you a Christian? I said, no, I'm not a Christian. I was just a young boy, about eight or nine years old, but I knew I wasn't a Christian. I'd known that since I was five. And uh, she said, well, uh, would you like to be a Christian? I said, well, I don't know how. Now, she didn't go any further. At least if she did, I don't remember it. But I know that I found out later the next time that train stopped in Georgia, there was a letter that went off that train and was mailed back to Louisville by that Jewish lady, Phyllis Sokol. And the letter was to Dr. Finley Gibson asking him to go and see this boy when he got back to Louisville. And it wasn't long after I got back to Louisville when that preacher came to see me. And he sat down and showed me from the Bible how to be saved. Now, I didn't trust Jesus there in my home that day. I wanted to. I don't know why I was scared. I don't know what was wrong. You know, I wish I could say tonight the first time the Holy Spirit ever dealt with my heart, I trusted Christ, but I didn't. I, I rejected him. I turned him away. I remember going to church. And uh, sometimes he had, a, he had a law against little children sitting in the balcony, and I'd try to get up in the balcony because I thought he couldn't see me, and I'd hide behind somebody up there and duck. You know, and those women wore great broad-brim hats in those days. I'm glad ladies don't wear hats anymore because nobody can hide behind them. I used to hide behind that hat, and that lady would go that way, and I'd go that way. And she'd go that way, and I'd go that way. Have you ever been in church when somebody's head got in front of you? Yeah, well, that's the way she was, and I'd hide behind her head. Uh, why did I do that? Because the Holy Spirit was dealing with my heart. And when he'd go like that, I thought he was talking right to me. I, he didn't even know I was there. The preacher didn't know I was there, but Jesus did. The Spirit of God did. And one Sunday night, when I could no longer resist God's Holy Spirit, they were singing a song, Jesus is tenderly calling you home. And I was sitting over on that side of the church, and I just closed my eyes and I said, Jesus, I want to trust you. I want you as my Savior, but I'm so afraid of these people. I'm afraid. I don't know what I was afraid of. And, and it just seemed like Jesus said, Richard, if you'll take the first step out of the aisle, I'll go with you the rest of the way. And I took a step out of the aisle and the Lord began to go with me. And I don't know whether I was saved when I took the step or on the way down the aisle, but I know when I got down there, I said, Dr. Gibson, I'm trusting Jesus. I love to tell that story. But I'm so grateful God didn't let me go on resisting the Holy Spirit. That was the tug of God's Holy Spirit in my heart. He was wrapping his arms of love around my soul and drawing me and drawing me. And I want to say to you tonight, that's what he's doing for you. And to reject that and to refuse it and to turn it away is to commit a sin that is dangerously near blasphemy. And if one continues on and on and on in that sin of rejecting, resisting the call and tug of the Holy Spirit, he eventually gets to a point in life where he is dead and insensitive to that tug and he begins to say that that thing is no longer important to him. To say that 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 tug at his heart 
It's probably just emotionalism. I've heard some people say, I don't like to go to the great mass evangelism meetings like Billy Sunday or Billy Graham or James Robinson or uh, some of the other meetings because there's so much emotionalism and the preacher gives an invitation and asks people to come right then and there's all that mass psychology of people come when maybe they ought not to come. I thank God for anything that will move men out of their lethargy and laziness and out of their sickness and sorrow and sin into Christ as the Holy Spirit deals with their hearts. Therefore, to reject the witness of the Holy Spirit today means that a man may pass up his only opportunity to be saved. Believing a dogma does not save only the Spirit can make a man believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 15, 10, we're told that the Holy Spirit loves. I think of that song, He stood at my heart's door amid sunshine and rain and patiently waited an entrance to gain. What shame that so long He entreated in vain, but now He is precious to me. He's precious. Who can commit blasphemy? That's point number two. Who can commit blasphemy? There are several kinds. Number one, the profane man. They can look at the very grace and power of God and call that the work of the devil. That's the way the scribes and Pharisees were. They could see God at work. And they were so hardened in their soul, so profane in their heart, they said, that's the devil. And Jesus said, you are in danger of blasphemy. Secondly, the rejecter. The purpose of the Holy Spirit, through the Spirit, God told His truth to men. Number two, through the Spirit, man could recognize or grasp God's truth. If a man long enough refuses to use any faculty, he will lose it. If a man over and over again refuses to use anything that God gives him, he will lose the ability. For instance, if we don't use our muscles, after a while, our muscles won't work. You get yourself in bed for several weeks and then get up and try to run a race. You can't do it. Your muscles, they don't work. Or you stop using your left arm or your right hand for a while, three or four weeks, three or four months, and after a while you can't use it. You let there lie dormant in your heart all this gift and talent that God has given you. Don't use it. And after a while you can't use it. I think Charles Darwin must have been a very sweet and precious man. Now, don't go out of here and say that I believe in evolution because I said that about Charles Darwin. But if you read some of the things about Darwin, you'll notice that he was a very uh, aesthetic man. And he loved art. And he loved music. In his early life, he was a great pianist. He used to listen to the classics. He used to read his Bible. In his early life, Charles Darwin was not an atheist. 
but he got interested in the study of biology. And he gave his mornings to biology. He gave his afternoons to biology. He gave his evenings to biology. He gave his nights to biology. Day after 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 day into years and years and years. And he gave to the world the origin of the species and a theory that was later developed far beyond his own theory, the survival of the fittest. But in his old age, he said to the maid that came to work, with, work to help him in his home, I wish you would get me a piano. The maid somehow got him a piano. He went over and tried to play it. He couldn't play. Disharmony, his fingers wouldn't work on it. He said to the maid, I have sinned against life. I have sinned against the gifts that God gave me. He said, instead of developing those areas of my life where I could have made a great contribution, I have given myself totally to one thing, biology. And he said, those who have surrounded me have taken it further than I ever planned. And he wept in remorse. All of his life he had neglected to use a gift that God had given him. When you neglect anything, there's always a payment involved. And when you neglect your soul's ability to recognize God, when you neglect your spirit's ability to receive God into your life and you keep him out and you keep him out and you keep him out. Somebody has said there's a God-shaped vacuum in every man's life. But when you keep him out and you keep him out year after year after year after year, there comes a day, there comes a day when you're insensitive and you no longer have that tug or call and you can't hear God because you've resisted him so long. Back in the days of the steam engine and the locomotives, men who would give their whole lifetime to the front end of that train as an engineer or a front brakeman or a fireman, they tell us that in the end of their lives, after they had spent 20, 30, 40, 50 years on the road, their hearing would become insensitive. You'd have to shout at them. I've known some. My dad was one. In his old age, he was hard of hearing, not because of any physical impairment, not because of any disease, but because he had stayed on that engine in his earlier life, year after year after year as a front brakeman, later in the other parts on a passenger train, but in the early part on that freight train up in the front. And and the roar of the engine and the roar of the train made his hearing insensitive and you'd have to say, Dad, Dad. Sometimes I drive along in my car now. I wish I could say, Dad. I guess this is melancholy on my part. 
Sometimes when I'm driving at night by myself, I do it. I say, Daddy, Dad, wish I could talk to you. But you know, when you go on rejecting truth and leaving God out and saying no and you resist Him and you reject Him, there comes a day when you can no longer hear the gentle whisper of the Spirit because He speaks in a still, small voice. This is the way it was with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They had so blinded themselves to God that when God came, they called him a devil. Evil became good, and good became evil. I think that's one of the problems we face in America today with the television. This thing I referred to this morning made me so sick, I could hardly contain it. It's enough to make you want to it's enough to make you want to boycott television. This whole thing tells that the main reason NBC had the story rewritten so that this James at 15 became James at 16, losing his virginity, losing his purity, and having immoral relationships, and it's shown there on television. The main reason well, so the February ratings of NBC would go up and everybody would watch it. Marketing in sin in the human body. Ladies and gentlemen, that's sin and God will not leave that unpunished. And when a man goes on, you see the television stations and I'm not just knocking them. Some of the things are good, thank God, for the educational parts and the news programs and all that. But our television media and so many other things have gone to the point where all they want is money, 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 e pluribus unum, gotta have it. And they don't care what they have to do to people to get it. And they're blind, they're blind to spiritual values and truth. And this happens with people, not only with the monopolies and the monstrosities, but it happens with individual people. They get blinded to truth. We live in the world so long that we think that the world's standards must be okay because that's where we dwell all the time. The Bible says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh the lust of the pride of life and the lust of the, of, of the eye is not of the Father but is of the world and the world passes away but he that doeth the will of God abideth into the ages from eon to eon. Now why is this unpardonable? Because a man in such a state cannot see good. He cannot have the Spirit's witness. Repentance becomes impossible. He has shut himself out and without repentance, there's no remission, there's no forgiveness. There's a third kind that can commit blasphemy, and this is the hardened heart. In Proverbs 29, 1, He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck and shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. And in Hebrews chapter 10, or chapter 3, 
Whereas, as the Holy Spirit said, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of the wilderness. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. While it is today, while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. A hardened heart. A hardened heart. A procrastinator. Thus, I conclude from a study of the Scripture that only a lost man can commit blasphemy. That only a person who has never received Jesus as his Savior can commit blasphemy because when you receive Jesus, you receive light. You receive life. You receive the seed of the Holy Spirit. And there's something inside of you that recognizes good and evil, that recognizes truth and falsity. And if you do not have that, you may be a church member, you may have been baptized 10 times. You may live a good life, but if you have never received Jesus Christ into your heart, you could commit blasphemy. But if you have received Jesus into your heart, if the Lord Jesus Christ lives in your heart, if the seed of the Holy Spirit has come into your heart, I do not believe the Scripture teaches that you can commit blasphemy. But if you're here tonight and you've never received him, You've rejected Christ. You've turned him away. You've said no to his love. You may be on the way toward blasphemy. Now let me say this. Uh, a man came to my office one night and said, I've committed the unpardonable sin. And I'm lost. Oh, I said that tell me about it and so he began to tell me about his life and how he once loved Jesus and served God and was living for the Lord and a series of problems came about and burdens and so on and and he, he sinned he let sin get in his life he sinned against God and he lost his joy of salvation and he dropped out of church he said to me, I want so much to come back, but I can't because I've committed the sin against the Holy Ghost, and I can't come back. I'll not go into all the sordid things that that man told me, but I was thankful that I could say to him, as long as there's that desire in your heart to come, you have not committed the sin against the Holy Ghost. Because when a man commits the sin against the Holy Ghost and blasphemes the Holy Ghost, he has no further recognition of God. He has no further recognition of godliness. He has no further recognition of good or evil. He has a reprobate mind and cannot tell good from evil, and he doesn't even have a desire to come to Christ. And as I began to show him from the Scripture, what he needed to do was for us to get on our knees and pour out his heart to God and confess his sins to the Lord and ask God to cleanse him from sin. He broke down in tears and he did it. He confessed these sins to God and God forgave him. He didn't, he wasn't, he didn't, wasn't part of this church. He was here in Bowling Green. He wasn't part of this church. He went to another church and he's active in that other church today. You see, he hadn't committed this. But you know what? The devil wanted him to think that because he wanted to destroy him spiritually. 
Not to get him in hell, the devil knew he could never get him in hell, but he could wipe him out here. He could keep him from ever amounting to anything for God here. And so he tried to convince him, and it almost became an emotional disillusionment with him. He almost went out of his mind with that awful, torturous thought. Well, I want to tell you tonight, and God, I believe, has told me to tell you this, that as long as there is a tug at your heart to come to Jesus, you have not committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That comes when you no longer sense any kind of desire toward Christ. And you no longer can even see Jesus as the Son of God, as the need, and you can no longer see your need of Christ. The scribes and Pharisees are the example. They didn't feel any need of God. When Jesus was crucified, they didn't come running and say, Oh, Jesus, I've sinned against you. They didn't do that. They sat back and said, Ha, ha, we're rid of him now. Blaspheming. Simon Peter cursed, denied that he knew Jesus. But the seed of the Spirit of God was in his heart when he realized what he had done. The Bible says he went out and wept, wept bitterly. And he came back and asking Jesus to forgive him. That's the difference of a saved man and a lost man. If you're here tonight and you've never been saved, you need to come to Christ. Because the longer you stay away from God, the more in jeopardy your soul becomes. The more you get to a position where you could so harden your heart and harden your desire and lose your, your kind of spiritual concern and compassion, and you could go away from God forever. You stand in an awful jeopardy of blasphemy when you reject Jesus. There's no other way to come to Christ. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other way to get to heaven except through repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This book says, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Come. He that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. I'm glad that's in the Word. You can come with your sins and your heartaches and your sorrows and your burdens and your, dep your depression and your uh, mental anxieties and all the other things. You can come to Him. And He says, I won't turn you away. I won't cast you out. I'll forgive you and I'll save you and I'll cleanse you and I'll keep you and I'll heal you and I'll be yours and you'll be mine forever and forever. Let's pray. With every head bowed and heart humbled before God for just a moment. Our Father, I pray tonight that I would put upon the hearts of your people a desire to take this message of Jesus to every person where there's a need. May they come with their sins. May they come with their neglect and just turn back to thee tonight. God help them. Your people. And then, Father, those who are here who have never been saved, help them to see the severity of going on without Christ. What an awful tragedy it would be to have someone come and visit in this service and then harden his heart and go out and went away from Christ, never to be saved, never to be saved, but in danger of blaspheming that precious Spirit of God and spending eternity separated from God. 
Have thy way in every heart. In Jesus' name, amen. May we stand, please. We're going to sing God's invitation tonight. And as we sing, would you keep in mind that this is the invitation of the Lord? It isn't my invitation, it's His. If you're here without Jesus, I want to urge you to come to Christ. This is God's hour. Don't turn Him away. Some of you have put Christ off again and again and again. God has spoken to you and you've said no to Him. You've resisted Him. You've rejected Him. I appeal to you tonight, do not reject the Savior. Come to Him just as you are, just like you are right now. Come with your sins. Come with your heartaches. Come with your sorrows, but come to Him wherever you are. Will you do it? It's a dangerous thing to reject the Savior. It's a dangerous thing to keep on saying no to God's grace. You stand in jeopardy of blasphemy. Let me urge you to come to Christ tonight while there's time. And if you're a Christian, let's get busy for God. Be done with all the lesser things. Put your affection on things above. Some of you need to walk down this aisle and say, I haven't been what I ought to be. I've been sort of a fake. I need to get right with God. Some need to come and move their membership to this church. Others need to come and say, I've never been saved, but I need to come and be saved. Somebody needs to come tonight and say, I've trusted Jesus, but I've never made it known publicly. I need to confess Christ openly and be baptized. Do it tonight. As the Spirit of God deals with your heart, will you let him have his way while we sing?